Ben's not doing word for word. I'm actually going to sit back and replay my audio to you. <laughs> and then I expect you two to just kind of play off of that. Hello, and welcome to Model View Conversation, America's premier tech education podcast. I'm Brian Gates. And I'm Ben Golke. And we're joined today by a very special guest, dear to our hearts. You know him, you love him. We know him, we love him. David Rogers, educator, developer, etc. Man about town. Man about town. Rockin' tour is the word I think yes. we were both searching for. Say hello to the people, David. Hello to the people, David. That's... That's the kind of guy he is. You're in for an hour of this. So how's it how's it going, David? Oh, it's going great. Um, uh, living life large up in North Carolina, uh, up here in Durham. Much colder. So to explain briefly who David is for those people who those few of you left who don't know who David Rogers is, um, he's a former colleague of ours from when we were teaching at the Iron Yard. Um, we all taught together, and he has since gone on to do all kinds of illustrious things. So maybe the first thing um, that we could kind of uh, hear about from you is your career path overall and, and particularly the stuff that you've been doing lately. Sure. Um, well, so I, I am mostly a self-taught dev uh, from back in the days when that was um, easier to do and there was only three things to learn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I started back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s uh, doing web development on what the web passed for at the time. And uh, 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 most of my career has been freelance consulting, uh, building things for uh, for money, um, which uh, there's a misnomer that uh, when you work for yourself, you don't have a boss. No, you just have everybody's everybody is your boss. Anybody who's willing to give you money is your boss, uh, or anybody whose money you're willing to take, I guess. Um, had several stints uh, working uh, working with Code School, got to work with the folks at Code School, got to work with uh, uh, a couple of shops around uh, Orlando uh, while I was down there in Orlando. I uh, helped build the Shaping Up with AngularJS course back in the summer of 2014. And uh, the Greg and, and the folks at Code School introduced me to um, uh, the founders of the Iron Yard who were planning to build a campus there in Orlando. And I got the great opportunity to, to launch the Orlando campus. That was 20, what, 2014, fall 2014. And uh, then we talked together, Brian and Ben and I talked together for uh, about a year or so before uh, there was another opportunity to move up to Raleigh-Durham uh, to teach the same front-end curriculum at the Durham campus, then help them launch the Raleigh campus, then moved over to uh, kind of an experiment in continuing education through the Iron Yard uh, with a, a buddy line up here called Corey Foy. Um, that experiment did not last as long as we would have liked, but case uh, off. Uh, and then after that, I, I started picking up a, I picked up a, a job at Pendo, uh, Pendo.io, which is a local startup here in Raleigh that's uh, it's all over the news around here, it's kind of the, um, the rocket ship. I uh, stayed there for about two and a half years, and um, most recently I started with a company called Grove Collaborative out of San Francisco that's building an HQ2 team, uh, engineering team here in Raleigh-Durham. And to talk a little bit more about those last two places, boy, you talk about... Uh, growing explosively I, it's hard to predict what's going to happen especially in the future but i saw on pendo's website they're talking about f adding 500 new jobs over the next couple of years yeah they, they were awarded a grant from the state of north carolina it was kind of the fallout from that amazon hq2 okay deal right 
that, uh, that the state was like, well, we've already allocated those, all this money. Why don't we pass that on to some businesses that have that have established themselves here or would like to establish their HQ, their permanent HQ here in North Carolina? So uh, there were a couple different companies, and Pendo was one of them. Homegrown in Raleigh, North Carolina, has uh, resisted offers and attempts to move out to the Bay Area. Uh, they do have an office in the Bay Area, but it's a, more of a support and sales office uh, to, to meet that market demand. Uh, their HQ is, uh, is, is permanently in uh, Raleigh. They're looking to maybe do a building in the, in the near future. Um, and and they their headcount plan has always been to get to you know, 500 or plus employees over the five, six, seven years that it'll take to get there. Wow. And what's, what, what, is the, what is the space they operate in? They're in the product analytics space. So their product uh, installs inside of other SaaS products to collect analytics about what the logged in users are doing inside of that other product. And then report that back to the people who are designing the product experiences for those products. You know, like how many people are clicking on this brand new feature uh, that are actually using the brand new feature. They engage with the feature for a certain amount of time. And then the second half of that is, well, how do we how do we help that? How do we make that happen more? How do we lead people towards those new experiences? And uh, <coughs> Pendo also provides Pendo also provides a uh, a system of like uh, templates and guides that will launch uh, light boxes or little tool tips or a walkthrough experience. Uh, so if, if there's a new feature that you would like to launch to your user base, you can drop a little tool tip on there. And, only targeted at the users that meet certain analytic criteria, like folks that have never seen that feature before, they've never used that feature before, but they've been in the product long enough, they probably should have by now. So then uh, you've, you've since moved on and you're now at Grow Collaborative. What is, what is their space and how, maybe how is it different from what you, know, what you experienced at Pendo? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a night and day difference. Uh, Grove is, um, like the public facing part of Grove is an e-commerce website. Uh, we sell uh, subscriptions to eco-friendly home products, uh, so they, they deliver them to your door on a, on a regular monthly schedule or, or bi-monthly or uh, once a quarter schedule to replace things like that you would buy at, at, at Target anyway, like uh, dish detergent and uh, laundry soap and uh, hand soap uh, and all kinds of other products. We also have our own product lines uh, that are emerging. One of those is a, a tree-free um, paper towels and tissues and that sort of thing. They're using upcycled um, sugar cane and uh, cultivated bamboo. We're actually having a net positive effect on reforestation. Uh, oh, wow. We funnel some of those profits into the Harbor Day Foundation and, and tree planting efforts. Uh, it's, that's, that's pretty cool. But the most interesting thing there is that uh, they're sourcing products from these um, third-party vendors, from these uh, B Corps and other uh, eco-friendly product vendors, holding those in warehousing to do the fulfillment on the e-commerce subscription side. They're also producing products with the uh, uh, seedling, uh, Rooted Beauty now is one of the new, new products. So they're on the manufacturing side and warehousing those products as well. So this is kind of like a little mini Amazon. That's the first time I've really had an opportunity to build a full ERP system uh, where we need to know how many materials uh, we, we need in order to build the products, in order to put the products in the warehouse, in order to meet the demand that's coming for the next season uh, so that we can ship the items on a regular schedule. And to keep away from uh, jargon bingo, what is what is ERP for our listeners? Oh, yeah. So that's uh, that's a 
It's a pattern that came out of the 80s uh, from the manufacturing sector pioneered by IBM. It's called enterprise resource planning. Uh, how much material do you need in order to manufacture the parts that you need in order to, to assemble the products that you need and uh, how much space are you going to need in the warehouse for those products in order to meet the demand for your customers through all the various channels that, that you're selling them through. Okay, and how has that, uh, what kind of challenges are there that you haven't really faced before? What what really excites you about about that new space as far as, you know, building software? Yeah, well, I've, I've taken a swing several times at uh, e-commerce, building e-commerce websites for people, helping them uh, categorize their inventory, helping them just like understand inventory management. How do you build SKUs? What do you need SKUs for? What do you not need SKUs for? All that stock keeping stuff. Um, but I've, I've never really gotten to see this far down the pipeline. I've done drop shipping websites and I've done uh, some um, online warehousing through Amazon and their, their flexible resources. Uh, but, but this is the first time that I've seen, you know, like Grove has cobbled together a bunch of different systems uh, to build that ERP platform. And I, I feel like we're, we're getting to an inflection point quickly where we'll have to eat more and more of that inside of internal engineering. That means I get to build a lot of cool stuff based on prior art. <laughs> right. Is your, is, have you found Grove to be um, like junior friendly? What, what does it look like as far as your team? And are you going to be you know, seeking out opportunities to get juniors involved in all that? Yeah, well, that, that was a, another part of the story that really excited me. The, uh, the team here, the engineering team, has, has, been, um, has been very junior friendly and mentorship friendly uh, pretty much since the beginning. Um, some of the longest, uh, some of the, the most senior folks here, the folks that have had the most seniority and been here the longest, uh, came from boot camps, came straight out of school. Uh, they had it maybe uh, you know, six months or a year under their belt, and they, you know, they came to Grove, and they really got mentored up. Uh, and are very productive members of the team right now that, that do a lot of the hard work and the heavy lifting. Um, and that's just been a part of the culture since they started. Uh, and the, the exporting one of their own from San Francisco here to basically do that again in North Carolina was right up my alley. That's terrific. Yeah, that's awesome that they're so friendly. I wish more companies were were like that for you know bringing. Hopefully, in. other people will will see this example and, yeah. and maybe learn from it and emulate it. So when you, when you are uh, in the process of helping to form that team, um, what kind of things do you generally look for when it comes to juniors and and uh, you know that could be you know regular skills or soft skills? What really kind of just as a a whole picture when you're considering juniors, what do you value the most? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I look for in the most in juniors, we, like, as, as we all know, uh, they don't have a lot of uh, prior experience to rely on during the interview process. Uh, one of the things that I coach juniors to do uh, that I look for in junior candidates is kind of a continuous story through their resume. So you, you, you pick and choose what you put on your resume. You get to decide what goes on your resume and, and what order it goes in. But as a hiring manager, what I'm looking for is that your resume actually tells the story of your progression uh, as a developer, as a, as a learner, as um, someone who's uh, basically what, what software development, what software engineering is all about. Just, I need to learn the next thing. How did I learn the next thing? What did I learn while I was learning the next thing? And how did it lead me to the next thing that I needed to learn after that? And that might be soft skills. It might be, uh, it might be specific technologies. Um, it might be refining, you know, it's a way to refine your craft or, or refine your practice of those technologies. Um, I think one of the most, Im most impressive things about uh, non-traditional learners, folks that come from another career and then retrain into software engineering, is that they then bring that experience 
uh, understanding a different part of what of whatever business we're in. Uh, they bring that experience to software development. Uh, a lot of junior programmers that come out of uh, four-year university, they have a lot more experience to programming concepts and computer science concepts, but as for the basic business operations and uh, what, you know, like management 101, um, how, do you, how do you deal with conflict, how do you manage up to the people that are, uh, that are above you, um, how do you manage across to other people on other teams, um, those skills that you, you don't get as much exposure to that when you're focusing only on programming and, and technical skills for four years. So that's one of the things that I really look for in promising junior uh, developers. Do you, do you have the potential? Do you, have you demonstrated that there is a progression to the way that you learn and how you pursue learning? And then also, what other skills are you bringing to the table beyond just programming? Are you a good communicator? Are you a good written communicator? Do you know how to read documentation? Do you know how to, uh, in, you know how to, to uh, reiterate that documentation to other people. Um, I, I guess that's the biggest soft skill as well. It's like we know everything in in a job is about like the most important thing is the people and the conversations that you have while you're working on the software that you're working. That's the, that's where that's where the proof is in the pudding. Your ability as a junior developer, uh, even as someone who doesn't necessarily understand all the moving parts, but to to learn something and assimilate it and then reflect that back to the team, whether that's to a lunch and learn, or through a meetup presentation, um, or, or just a little uh, selfie YouTube video, or, or something like that, that demonstrates something that you have learned, however small. Being able to communicate that back is, is super important. And you, you don't really learn anything as well until you have to teach it to someone else, right? Like something that the three of us learned. <laughs> What do you say to the junior, aspiring junior, who would like to be able to demonstrate that, but feels like between whatever career they have right now and the felt need to improve their software skills, that there's just not time for that other kind of demonstration aspect of things, whether blogging or presentations or meetups or whatever? Well, that's a tough one, right? Like, uh, I've, it, I've fallen on and off the wagon many times with um, uh, being a uh, conference speaker, uh, being a meetup organizer, contributing to meetups, blogging, tweeting, all those types of things. Um, you, you really have to fit it into your life, right? So uh, there's, there's always time for that. And uh, I think, Brian, you shared to me an article uh, from, from Kent Dodds, who's a, a well-recognized uh, figure in the community, talking about how he just smashes it into work hours, right? Like, there's value in doing those things for you and developing yourself as a resource. And there's value in developing yourself as a resource for the team. And therefore there's value in developing yourself and your team as, as resources to the business. Why would you not then take some time during your work hours, during the work that you're doing for other people to continue to improve yourself? Whether that's through blogging or writing or answering Stack Overflow questions or for, lately for me it's been Quora. I find some of the questions on Quora to be uh, very entertaining. And, um, uh, and and fun to write back on. I somehow got like um, I, I got to be known as a as they sent me an email the other day as someone who is no, a recognized expert on ninjas. Would you care to answer the following questions? Okay. Because <laughs> I answered too many of those code ninja interview questions. <laughs> uh -huh. All right. 
So let's say, David, that you've got someone that maybe has caught your eye resume-wise, right? The narrative is strong there. You think that they, they have a lot to learn, but they have that they've got something to bring to the table. Um, and you want to bring them into, you know, in, into the, the company to, to interview, to actually see, okay, do they maybe have the chops that, that they claim to, t- to have on their resume? Or is that, you know, does that narrative really tell a story that they hope that they're telling. <laughs> um, so from, you know, we've given advice on this podcast before about kind of uh, best practices and tips on how to do well in an interview and kind of what to expect, particularly if you're new to this field, you may have interviewed in other industries and it just doesn't, um, it doesn't necessarily compare to the sort of the unique, I think the unique pressure of a technical interview. Um, so from an interviewer's perspective, um, as someone who's interviewed quite a few people before, what are you what are you trying to get out of that particular experience that you know the the hour let's say that you have with that person um what are you trying to get out of it and and what would you see either as you know green flags things that like okay this is a good this is a positive sign versus things that, that maybe they say or do that become then red flags in your mind yeah um i, I when i think about interviewing i i generally try to categorize my interviewing technique into like one of three buckets there's uh, kind of a soft interview, right, where it usually takes the form of like a resume deep dive, where you know, tell, tell me about your career path, tell me how you're, you know, tell me about the steps in your resume, basically tell me a story, tell me the story of how you became a developer and what you've done for your development career. Um, so that's kind of like the soft interview. We will, I'll stop them at various points and ask them deeper questions about, well, tell me about your work on this team or that team or how you interacted with this person or. Um, it sounds like there was some conflict there. Can you tell me about how that conflict was resolved and who helped resolve that conflict? With juniors, that's a lot harder because they usually don't have a lot of experience on a technical team. Uh, but even just talking, yeah, I found talking with uh, boot camp grads about their boot camp experience. Tell me the hardest thing that you had to learn uh, while you're in boot camp. Not necessarily technical, just the hardest thing that you had to learn about yourself and about others while you were in boot camp. And, and tell me some of the progression, some of the projects that you worked on. What did you see by week 12 or 16 or whatever it was for you uh, that you look back on week two and you're like, I can't believe I didn't get that. Or uh, you know, now I totally understand that thing that was given to us at, at week five. Uh, being able to communicate that be, demonstrates a certain amount of, um, of inner reflection, uh, a certain amount of intentional inner reflection on your learning process, it's the, the metacognition or the meta-learning about learning, right? Did I learn about learning? Did I learn about how I learn enough to improve the way in which I learn? Uh, and that's, that's really what it's all about as an engineer, right? We're constantly having to learn the next thing. Uh, then there's the second bucket is more like the architectural, like big picture. Just say I give you a big picture. Um, build me a bookstore. Uh, build me a whatever. Where, where do you go? What do you what do you build? You, you're responsible for deciding how to build it, and I'll I'm I'm going to role play as your product owner, uh, your product manager. Um, you you do whatever you need to do, right? That kind of an interview. I'm I'm looking for someone who's asking questions, uh, who wants to, who, who recognizes that the um, instructions that I just gave you are way inadequate <laughs> for the task at hand, right? They are. Uh, uh, they require some additional elucidation. I, w- I want you to ask me questions, and really, if we spent most of our time with you just asking me additional questions and getting more information about what we are supposed to build and why we're supposed to build it, and how you would like me to build it, or if I care, 
that's a pretty good interview. That's a, that's a fairly solid interview. Uh, there, that's not to say that I just want you to sit there and run your mouth for like 20 minutes on a 45 minute interview, but the, the candidate that goes up to the board and actually writes down the requirements as they pull them out of my head, um, whatever those requirements might be and in whatever form, but certainly folks that understand user stories and can start to build like, oh, so as an admin, I can do such and such. Uh, and also recognizes my verbal cues when I say, well, we probably don't need to worry about admins for this example. Let's just start with the customers. Okay, so as a customer, I can do what? And, and actually build out user stories as a first step. Total extra brownie points there. That's, that's totally what I'm looking for. Those are the types of people that I want to I work with. Even if that's a, uh, a junior person, to be able to recognize there are requirements and they are user focused, they are, they are, uh, they're customer focused. What are those requirements? That's a, that's a great first step. And then the third bucket is probably like the, the honest, like what we think about as technical interview, right? Here is a whiteboard. I will challenge you with an algorithm, <laughs> which are literally the worst, uh, but I don't know of a way around them. And, you know, I was talking about this with, um, with one of the folks that I was mentoring here in the community. Like, how do you get around that, that whiteboard interview? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I've submitted myself to Google interview. I've submitted myself to Facebook interview. I've interviewed for AWS over the years, and uh, they all sucked. <laughs> they were really horrible. And they're even worse because I was coming from East Coast to West Coast. I'm already like four hours behind or ahead of all of them. So I was up at four in the morning going, I wonder what I should study. Uh, is there a coffee house around here? Open it for. What do you see of the, the pros and cons of the in-person, on-the-spot whiteboarding interview versus maybe a, a code challenge sent several days in advance or pair programming through something on-site or something like that? Yeah, I think, I think the pair programming, um, actually solving a real issue is my ideal scenario. Um, mm -hmm. That can be really time intensive and it can be, it can be very you know, person intensive, developer intensive. You're basically pairing with a person for a big chunk of time. And most interview blocks are like 45 minutes. There's not a lot you can do inside of 45 minutes. It's really meaningful. Um, I don't know that there's a lot of value that you can get out of the coding interview. The, the way that I approach it is to say, I don't care what your answer is. I really don't. Uh, I don't care if you come to the right answer. I don't care if you come to the optimal answer. I don't want you to come to the optimal answer on the first pass. What I want to do is see how you think about a problem, what questions you ask, uh, where do you go, um, what do you have on the top of your head, what have you practiced, what have you not practiced. And if I give you a, a, I'll give you a problem that you're like, I totally know the answer to that immediately, maybe we can pick a different problem. Maybe we can pick something that, that you actually have to think through the algorithm and come up with, uh, you know, come up with a conversation about it. Um, but I, again, I don't, I don't know there's a whole lot of value in those sorts of things. I think take-home tests have their own problems. Uh, it, it can be, can be more interesting to see, here's a, here's a, here's a smallish problem, what I think is a smallish problem, and I would like to see how you solved it with maybe a gist or a GitHub repo or something like that. Uh, but that, also then requires some time from the interviewee, right? Like someone like me who has four kids and a house and a yard and all the, the joys of home ownership and parenthood that go along with that, uh, it's hard for me to carve out two to four hours uh, on top of all the other things that I'm doing just to fill out this stupid code challenge. I guess I can build you a to-do MVC again. 
I think one of the worst ones was uh, uh, I, I was talking with some folks and they were showing me their, their take home code challenge. And they had their own product that was a pretty complex um, uh, blockchain based technology API where you could spin up a blockchain application. Their take home test was build a simple, quote unquote, build uh -huh. a simple blockchain app using a smart <laughs> contract and a would you what? Okay. And, Get right and then on that. you as the interviewee has learned something about the interviewer, right? Exactly. It's... Exactly. Well, I think that's the biggest challenge here is that, you know, to, if we're going from the interviewer side, right from the company side, it is really, really hard to assess people accurately. And if you do care and you do want to do a good job with this, you have to do a ton of prep. You can't be handed a resume as you're walking into the conference room for this interview and go, here, spend the next hour interviewing this person where beforehand you had no idea you were even doing that today, right? They just they, they slack you five minutes before and say, hey, walk towards the conference room. I'm going to hand you this resume. That's just not enough time to pr properly prepare for things. Um, and so it's just it's difficult to do a good job because, like you said, if, if you were going to, maybe you'd pair, maybe you'd, you'd set up a scenario with your working code base. You'd branch off and you'd take a little piece and, and you'd have them maybe even submit a pull request and you'd, you'd, you'd do exactly what you would do in the real job. It's just that that requires a whole bunch yeah. of foreplanning, you know, to, to get, have that all queued up and ready to go. And most companies just don't, unfortunately, don't seem to care that much. Um, so with that in mind, with, with the idea that it is going to be very imperfect, um, what advice would you give to maybe the interviewees, right? These, the juniors that we're talking about here, how best should they prep? Because that's something that I get all the time from, you know, uh, running the meetup and just being involved with juniors in general is that a lot of them, will, one of the first things they'll typically ask me when they find out, you know, who I am and that I've taught juniors before and stuff and that I have experience, they'll say, oh, that's great. Can you please give me some advice on like how to, how to manage the interview process so I don't kill myself? So it's not like, so it's not just, I just, I'm, I'm not just staying up until, like you said, until four in the morning, prepping just endless code war examples, right? Hoping that they, that they ask one of them, do you have any kind of practical advice for tackling it in the best way you can without just memorizing necessarily the top 50 algorithms yeah i mean if i think i think that that's a um, that's a telltale sign for juniors if you are if you are qualified or disqualified based on your ability to regurgitate a memorized example um, that's probably not some place that's going to be junior friendly right uh, if they're looking for an opportunity to invalidate your application um, through one of these coding algorithm challenges uh, that's probably not, I mean, that, that probably isn't reflective of what they do on a day-to-day -day basis anyway, and their interview process may not be as finely tuned as, as, uh, as we're talking about. I think e even at Pendo, we did a really good job of uh, assigning roles to the interview process. We had group interview training. We, we spent a lot of time making sure that we were doing interviews right, both by the company and by the interviewees that were coming in. Because, um, Regardless of who you are inside the company and regardless of how senior the person is that's doing the interview that you're actually interviewing, in that situation between interviewer and interviewee, the interviewer holds all of the power. The interviewee is basically defending their career of the last however many months or years to this panel of rotating judges <laughs> with fabricated, uh, you, you've said it before, Ben, like, uh, Miss America pageant answers, right? Like, do, do you have a polished, practiced, 
refined answer to this uh, algorithmic challenge? Do you have a polished answer to this, um, how would you deal with conflict? Um, to a certain extent, the interviewers can tell when that's a practiced answer and it's, it's not interesting. What, what I, as an interviewer, want to do is extend to you grace and, ex and make you feel comfortable. Usually I'll open in every interview, regardless of where I am in the schedule, I'll uh, open the interview with, what questions do you have for me about this place that you're interviewing? Because I know you have questions, uh, even if this, I'm the first person on the, on the list. What can I answer for you for like, you know, five, ten minutes? And then let me jump in and tell you what the rest of the interview process is going to look like and what this interview is supposed to look like and what I'm looking for in an interview to kind of put them at ease so that, you know, they don't feel like uh, it's, I'm judging their life. I think that's the biggest thing that you can do to, like, to be prepared is just to be comfortable with the accomplishments that you have already done and recognize that they are accomplishments, right? Like if you survived a 12-week boot camp and actually produced a final project at the end of it, uh, whether that final project was at 12 weeks or it was at 18 weeks or it was at three months afterwards, it doesn't matter. Like you went from zero to I know a whole crap ton about the Internet uh, in a very short amount of time. If you survived four years of computer science school and you, you made it through uh, senior projects or, or wherever it is you made it through, you still know a heck ton more than a lot of people in the world today. So recognize that that's valuable. That's totally valuable to business. Right. Take the win and then make sure that other people know that it was a win. And I'd been preaching along those lines that when uh, a junior comes in for an interview to just seize the initiative and tell your story that way. You know, the interviewer says, tell me a little bit about yourself. Just spin the laptop around and say, I'm the person who built this thing and it was using these technologies. And here's a bit of code that I found particularly interesting. And just you know, ride that pony because then you're, you're in your element. You're talking about the code you know the best and demonstrating how well you know code that you've seen before, uh, which is, is not something that you would, will likely get a chance to do if you're sort of leaving yourself to the mercy of whatever the interviewer wants to show you. And I, th I think in a fair number of cases, the interviewer would be sort of grateful to have the responsibility of the interview taken off their hands. Oh, yeah. Because like, like Ben said, a lot of times people come in having just been handed a resume. They don't know what's going on. And so if someone else is telling a story and being entertaining and informative, then, oh, okay, I'll listen to this, what this person has to say. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's some really good um, advice about interviewing in uh, Michael Lopp, uh, his, his book, Being Geek. It's a compilation. He, so he's a, a blogger under the name Rands. Rands and Repose is his blog um, at O'Reilly helped him compile a, a, a version of a lot of his uh, more popular blogs into a book like he did in the mid-2000s, right? Uh, but I found that to be a, a very useful um, handbook for my own career and for the career of lots of other junior folks. And it goes through the interview process. It talks about different personalities you might encounter during the uh, interview process and um, what you need to do in order to uh, win with each one of those different types of personalities. It also talks about some of the things that you should not talk about during the interview process, especially a technical interview, right? Like someone brings up, like, how much did you make at your last job? That's between me and the internal recruiter, the hiring coordinator, whoever that is. And it's, he gives some very graceful and, and polite ways to sidestep that question um, without giving a factual uh, answer. Being prepared just being prepared for the types of questions that you might, you might get asked, whether that's algorithmic challenges or 
my developer story or um, things that I shouldn't answer, like what what did I what have I made so far, and what am I looking to make next, and do you want to be a manager, and all those types of things. You know, that's super helpful. Yeah, there are some things that that uh, come across as phony if it's a polished and practiced answer, and there are some things that you're much better off just having that at your disposal rather than on the drive home thinking, oh, here's how I should have handled that one, right? So what would you say for for juniors um, along the lines of money? A lot of times I found that, um, particularly if the people that are doing the interviewing don't have a lot of experience at it, they will ask things out of turn. Like, for example, asking about money and stuff like that during the part where, in theory, the person is trying to assess your ability to answer questions, you know, tactfully and 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 to give. Uh, useful technical, you know, descriptions and to communicate effectively in that way. So, and then they just like throw in a question about, so how much money do you want to make, right? Like what kind of advice would you give to juniors who, who, you know, maybe will encounter that like out of turn question when what's supposed to happen is it's supposed to happen either at a later date or, you know, at least a, a later stage when the person that's kind of maybe directly doing the hiring themselves really is responsible for that. How would you, how would, what advice would you give juniors to kind of maybe help deflect those kinds of out-of-turn questions? Uh, I mean, I think, I think Rams gives much better advice than I could give, and I'll just echo back what, what he talks about in his book, but uh, it's the same advice that I give to, uh, to folks that I mentor. Um, this is your interview. This is your one chance to, uh, to, to demonstrate who you are as a person, and one of the things that that interviewer is trying to demonstrate is that they're throwing a power play on you when they start asking questions out of turn, questions that don't make any sense, uh, particularly for um, for women and people of color. If there are off-color questions coming at you, that's a pretty good sign you don't want to work there because you're going to have to work with that guy. Uh, second of all, uh, that's something you should probably bring up with the hiring manager because they may not necessarily know that those types of questions are coming their way. And they should have given their interviewers, should have, right, but don't know, don't necessarily always do, they should have given their interviewers training on how to interview and what not to say during an interview. And one of the things the, interview sh- the interviewers should have been told is, you don't talk about money. Uh, we don't talk about, like, are you planning on having kids sometime soon? Because <laughs> <laughs> Who would do yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, that's just straight you up illegal. You, you would can't. think, well, who would ever do that? But it happened. <laughs> it definitely happened. Um, you know, what's your family life like at home? Because why? Because you work all the time? Is that like, like what are you trying to tell me here? They're, they're, they're giving away information the same way that they're helping you would give away information. It's all a negotiation. So yeah, if you, if you hear those things and you're like, I don't think that's relevant to what we're talking about here. Um, is, is there something more technical you'd like to ask? That's a great way to pivot back. It's the... Um, uh, it's, it's the, the classic political pivot, right? Where you're like, I have my talking points and I'm going back to my right. talking points. <laughs> I like Ben's phrase of speaking out of turn. I, I just <laughs> jump into some kind of Jane Austen character. You, you're speaking out of turn, sir. <laughs> I suggest we return to the matter at hand. <laughs> <laughs> pull, pull that hook nonsense. Bad form, sir. Bad form. <laughs> Bad form. <laughs> so to kind of uh, pivot ourselves um, around around that that kind of thing, being able to tactfully respond to stuff like that, out of turn questions and things, really does fall into the kind of non technical skill set 
been. Um, so what would you say, you've touched on a couple already, but kind of what would you, what do you look for in maybe the ideal candidate regarding non-technical skills? Like what, what non-technical skills do you find to be the most important um, and that might be the, you know, the best um, indicators of future, you know, success and cohesion within a team? Yeah, um, I, th I think people who have had to deal with difficult personalities before, uh, in Orlando we had a lot of folks that have been through the service industry. I've been through the service industry myself, right? There are exactly 12 types of people that you will encounter in long-term <laughs> service industry <laughs> Being able to have conversations about, you know, like, well, so how would you deal with blah, 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 blah? And like, oh, yeah, the oh, owner, yeah. right? Yeah. Having those kind of soft skills to be able to manage those other types of uh, working personalities is super helpful. Something that I, I enjoy hearing those stories. Um, learning about how you learn, like what what are the thing, what are the what are your go-to's? Uh, what do you do outside of life? Do you actually understand that there is a balance? Because let's face it, in a 12-week boot camp, there's not a lot of balance. There's right? not. We would tell our students right up front, like, this is going to be really hard. You're going to work a lot. Don't think that this is what it's like after you get outside. Please don't do this again. I've, I've talked to some folks that have come out of the boot camp and uh, various boot camps, and that's one of the first things they say is that, you know, I got my first gig and I really worked my butt off, and I really quickly realized that, that was not sustainable. And th that was really like a specific set of time that I was doing that, and I, I can't continue doing that. I kind of fell off the wagon again with that. Thank you for at least giving us the advice that that's not how it's supposed to be, because that was the first clue that like everyone was run ragged. I was looking around and everyone was run ragged. Maybe this isn't the most sustainable place for me to work. And I moved on and I got another great job instead. <laughs> Along those lines, let's say that you've you've gotten that job, right? You've you've moved on and you you've you've gotten through the gauntlet that was the technical interview, and the the people have called you back, and it's time to actually um, maybe. Take your first job. You're free, you're out of boot camp. You're at a, a CS program. You've self-taught. However, it is that you've gotten to this place, you've ended up where now you know you're you've you've proven enough that you can actually do the job, and you're there. Um, but maybe maybe you do want to make sure that you are keeping a good you know work-life balance. But you're also concerned with not just necessarily doing whatever is handed to you, but you want to make sure that your your knowledge, your skills, the career path that you've maybe laid out for yourself. Um, is that progress is being made there, even if, you know, it could be that the job will just kind of take care of that for you, the, the things that you're going to be doing will help advance those, but maybe, maybe not. A lot of times, you know, junior, first junior jobs tend to be not wonderful in, in from the aspect of, you know, they might be given some work that is the work that nobody else wants to do, or they, or they just, they're not given a lot of responsibility um, or autonomy. Um, and so if you as a junior want to, you know, I want to become a mid, right? I, I want to, I don't want to just stay a junior forever. I want to become a mid. What should I be doing from day one of my job? Again, not to run yourself ragged, but to just kind of keep an eye on that ball so that the, the process is moving forward. Yeah. I, well, I think um, there's, there's two important things inside of there. One is, uh, being aware, being self-aware of where you're at in your own career. Um, as a junior developer, as someone with one, two, maybe three years of experience doing the grunt work tasks, um, that's, that's kind of your job. Your job is to do the grunt work tasks. It, it, if we look at the um, Dreyfus model of, uh, of learning progression, right, you're way over on novice to beginner. 
where you don't even, there are lots of things that you don't even know that you don't know yet. There are some things that you do know that you don't know, and there are a couple things that you maybe know that you think you know unless someone quizzes you on them. <laughs> like you're, 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 you're highly focused on being productive in a couple small areas, but there's a whole lot of range for you to grow. That is the best place for you to be asking for more work, asking for more direction, asking people questions. I don't know anything about this part of the code. I don't even know how to find out about this part of the code. Can you help me understand how I could understand more about this code? Uh, and that's what will help you advance to, uh, to the advanced beginner and the practitioner stage of, of development, that, that mid-level. Um, you need to be able to do the same thing over and over and over again. And sometimes that means I am going to be writing the CSS today, or I am going to be fiddling with these, uh, these little bootstrap components or foundation components or whatever it is. I am not going to be, I'm going to be setting up this build pipeline for somebody else because I've done that like a billion times before. Um, I'm not going to be architecting the system, but I should be kibitzing over the shoulder of whoever is architecting the system and asking really good questions about why are we doing this this way and why have we done it this way and why did we try to do it this other Did we try to do it other ways? What are the other ways that we could have done it? Um, asking those questions and understanding the whys and the hows behind the system is super important when you're in that entry level uh, beginner stage. And a lot of people find, have a hard time jumping from that into intermediate stage, but that's just because you have to grind through it. The Malcolm Gladwell's outliers and the 10,000 hours of practice, you gotta have the 10,000 hours of practice and that does not come overnight. You do not just get instantly recognized as, oh, you know something, we will give you more responsibility. You have to grind at it for a while there before you, you, can, you have to make a whole lot of mistakes and learn from those mistakes in order to get there. And what counts as practice in our field? Is it going out and teaching yourself something new, or is it uh, spending time with things that you kind of know but aren't completely solid on, or is it making yourself faster with stuff? Or I think all 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 of those things are like those are different skills, right? Uh, the, your your efficiency with a particular skill set is a reflection of your familiarity with it. Um, the, the, the speed at which you pick up new things, that, that learning ability is actually a skill by itself. Uh, so that's a skill that you have to have as a developer. Um, being able to be productive with the skills that you have with each individual skill that you have is, is a skill unto itself. Um, part of that comes from uh, the, the question that you, that you asked about, like what is practice? What do we count as practice, right? Like doctors operate on people all the time. We call that practice. Uh, is, is operating on the internet, uh, is that practice? I guess I'm practicing my skills by performing them day to day, but uh, it, that's not the same as the type of intentional practice that a musician undertakes in order to perfect their craft, in order to, to learn some other piece, in order to, um, uh, to gain mastery of a particular uh, progression or, or, or rhythm. Um, that type of intentional practice comes by selecting a skill that I need to improve, and then intentionally sitting down with the with the uh, with the intent of improving that. Like, let me form a plan. Like, how am I going to get faster at this? Um, for me, a, f a few years ago, it was touch typing. I um, I never learned to be a touch typist. I didn't take keyboarding class. That was not a thing that was 
Like I guess that could have been offered, but I had other classes that I took instead, uh, wasting too many years of my life playing the tuba. Uh, <laughs> so I never learned to touch type, uh, but I've been a programmer for, my, for a really long time, and I felt several years ago learning to touch type would help me improve my programming ability. And so I, I started doing things like turning down the um, turning down the lights, the backlights on my keyboard, so that I couldn't see the the uh, the, the, the legends as well while I was typing. To the point that now I, I use a keyboard that has no legends on it whatsoever. Uh, that was an intentional decision that I made a couple years ago when I started Pendleton. I'm getting this. I'm getting this keyboard. There, there's no training wheels left. I will learn how to touch type, or I will die trying. And no one ever paired with him again. <laughs> you, you keep you keep the other like dusty nasty version with the legends on it on the uh -huh. side. Well, here's your keyboard. <laughs> yeah, between you, Dave, with the with the with the legendless keys, and you, Brian, with the Dvorak yeah. layout, I think no one's ever gonna <laughs> pair with either of you. So what's the what's the programming equivalent of like running the scales, right? Of 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 getting on a keyboard and, and running up and down the different scales to, to practice. You're obviously not making really music in that case. You're just sort of practicing the motions that will then serve you well when you're trying to actually perform a real piece of music on the piano or whatever it might be. Um, so what have you done uh, to maybe you're trying to learn either a new language or you're just trying to learn a, a concept better? Um, what is your equivalent of, of running the scales? Yeah. Uh, for me, it was... Um it was these test-driven development katas that uh, we go back to like 2012 or so. Uh, Carlos from Code School and I started a coding dojo group in Orlando. He had just moved up, um, I guess it was 2011, 20, maybe I've been earlier than that, but uh, uh, he had just moved up from uh, Brazil and they, that was a big thing in Brazil, in, in Rio, was lots of these coding dojos where uh, there would be a group of people and two people would sit in front of the group and pair program to solve a problem that nobody really cared about, like FizzBuzz or um, the Project Euler uh, threes and fives or the sum of even Fibonacci terms up to four million or something. You know, something ridiculous. It's one of these algorithmic challenges that nobody really needs. It's not business logic. It doesn't, nobody really needs solving. But as a group, we can discuss what's the algorithm we're going to use to implement this? What are the pieces that we're going we're to do? And then let's pick a pair and get started. Uh, after a certain number of minutes, uh, one of the pair will go back to the audience. Some, that person will become the new pilot and the person who is typing. And someone from the audience will come up and become the new co-pilot and uh, make sure the pilot is staying on track. And you rotate that through the audience. So we did that for like two years solid. And that really that got me thinking about, like, this is actually a really good way to learn and practice new programming languages. And so all of the programming languages that I've taught myself over the years uh, whether it was PHP uh, or Python or JavaScript or uh, Ruby or, or anything else, I've, I've used that method. I picked the top three, four different Project Euler problems. Uh, I set up a, a blank test file and a blank uh, production production file, um, get it all wiring, and, um, and then you start solving the problem. Like what is what is the algorithm that I'm going to use to solve this problem? And what are the test cases that I'm going to need? How do I let me implement the test cases first, TDD style? at least just enough test case to get to uh, a red test result, and then write just enough code on the production side to make those red tests green. And I'll do it again. Let's write another test that fails or another piece of the test that fails, 
uh, it goes red, and then we go back over to the production code and write enough production code to make it go green. After having done this with a couple problems in a language that I knew fairly well, PHP, I taught myself how to do test-driven development. So let's try this again with JavaScript. I need to brush up on my JavaScript skills. I need to get better at that back in 2003 or whatever it was that uh, JavaScript was, uh, was becoming more popular. Uh, so I, I did the exact same thing. What is the test, what testing frameworks exist? Let me go read about those. Let me set up a, a testing framework with a test file and a production file and make sure the wiring's right. Okay, I'm ready to go. Let me run the tests. Uh, assert that this, this function, this solution exists. It doesn't. Okay, let me go write production code to make sure that the thing itself exists. Go to green. Go back to red. Well, if I give it these inputs, it should produce these outputs. It doesn't. Of course it doesn't. I haven't written that part yet. Let me write that in the production code. Uh, just the simplest thing that I possibly could. And slowly baby step your way through the, um, the development process. After I've done a couple of these, alert picking up another language uh, just meant how do I run the tests in that language? Let me just translate my bad PHP or bad JavaScript into bad Python or bad Ruby. And then on the next iteration, I'll just delete the production code and keep my tests the same. How can I learn generator syntax in Python. I feel like generator syntax would make this a lot easier. How could I learn class, a class definition? How, do, how could I write this in an object-oriented way in Ruby? Because I feel like that would be helpful. It's something that I need to learn how to do. Uh, how would I do this in a purely functional style in Elixir? Because Elixir is all functional programming. How would I do it that way? And then having those examples, I can take that back to, my, uh, to the other languages when they added generator syntax in JavaScript. Let me refactor my test, my, my production code, so that it uses JavaScript generators. And now I've taught myself JavaScript generators. Uh, when, they, when they added generator syntax to PHP, I can go back and learn generator syntax in PHP. Uh, there's something new and cool in whatever, um, whatever new language I, I want uh, to learn. You know, whenever there's some new technique like list comprehensions or dictionary comprehensions in Python that I, I want to practice. How could I solve one of these four problems or all four of these problems using list comprehensions or dictionary comprehensions? It doesn't even make sense to do that. And having gone through that process for several different languages, and it sounds like several iterations within each of several languages, do you feel like you're better off taking those kind of baby steps, or would you have been better off uh, being more ambitious and saying, well, I, I don't really know this language, and I don't know TDD, and I don't really know functional programming, but I want to learn them all, so I might as well just get them all, you know, taken care of all at once. Right. <laughs> that, that usually works out great. That's, 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 I mean, we, we see the same problem in, you know, like uh, implementing when, when we're performing, right? It's one of the things that I think TDD has taught me over and over and over again is that when I take too big a step, I tend to fall. I, I tend to trip over something that I, I didn't see. Uh, so taking those baby steps, uh, uh, we talked about it in... Um, in our group before, like scaffolding those solutions for myself so that I'm really only learning one thing at a time, or maybe two things, maybe two things. I'm practicing one thing that I already I think I maybe know a little bit about, but I'm now learning a second thing, right? Like I'm limiting the focus of what I'm trying, of the knowledge that I'm trying to acquire so that I can be successful in that way. That's, that's just how humans learn, right? That's just how humans learn. And it, it sounds like it, it might be like, you know, to the listener, they might think, well, that sounds really boring. I'm going to pick five problems. And then for the rest of my life, every time I learn a new programming concept, I'm going to have to use these one of these five problems. Um, 
or or maybe you know even if we're not talking about a full lifetime it's just over the course of six months i've seen this problem a million times already in a million different languages and it sounds like it's just sort of this tedious task of just churning through this and and attempting to get to the end but what you're really saying there is you're just controlling the variables right you're trying to say okay there's a million variables here and if i tried to tackle them all at once i'm just we're humans are just terrible at that right we're not going to be able to 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 make any sense of it it's just going to be kind of a mess um and you're going to do a lot of work and you're going to you're going to end up at the end where you just don't really have much to show for it whereas if you yes it might seem boring but on the other hand it's familiar right this the fizz buzz problem is very familiar to me because i've done it in six different languages over the course of the last year and and with different techniques and whatever um so when it comes time to doing a new version of fizz buzz using functional programming in Python or whatever it might be, whatever couple of things you choose, that's one less thing you have to worry about, right? I know how to solve FizzBuzz sort of as an algorithm. Now, how do I apply that to this specific set of things I'm trying to learn? And how does this particular solution maybe inform a better way to solve FizzBuzz, right? You maybe don't even realize, like, oh, I could use these functional techniques and I can solve it in half the time or whatever. It's something that you're going to, you are going to get something very concrete out of it, but you've already figured out how to solve this puzzle. It's not a matter of just solving the problem. It's a matter of, and that's, it, like you said, it's not important at the coding dojos. You weren't, you weren't trying to solve anything really all that incredibly interesting. It wasn't the, it wasn't the solution. It was the journey. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of times, uh, a lot of learning resources for, especially for juniors tend to sometimes forget is that they have to always be the most relevant production ready piece of, of 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 code that you're going to end up with and while i am not a fan of endlessly spinning your wheels on things that don't matter um and i think we do too much of that kind of in general like in traditional education i do think it's healthy to have you know something that maybe you can fall back on like you said over and over again where you can say i this thing i got this down this problem i got this down but i just don't know how to do it in python or whatever um and it's a really great way to kind of just make sure that you're focusing on the right thing at the right time I think um, along those lines that you don't have to pick a trivial problem in order to challenge yourself, right? Uh, you can pick a hard problem and just solve it trivially in order to, to get right. Like that's the whole cracking the coding interview uh, in a nutshell is that these are actually hard computer science problems and you can solve them trivially. Um, same thing with Project Euler. Like these are, these are fairly, com fairly um, common computer science problems that you could solve trivially and now, what does that mean to solve something trivially? Uh, uh, we, we would say trivially or naively, right? Like, uh, say the Fibonacci sequence, right? Like, uh, in, in order to generate the Fibonacci sequence, I take two terms, one and one, or one and zero, depending on how you want to start it. I sum them together, and I get the next term in the sequence. So then I take those two terms, and I sum them together again, and I get the next term in the sequence. And if I told you, I want the sum of all even Fibonacci terms, we have to first define, like, well, what do you mean? Do you mean, like, every, every even-numbered term? So, like, the second term and the fourth term and the sixth term and the eighth term? Or do you mean terms that are themselves even numbers? Okay, well, let's say we've, we've sorted that out. I want you to give me the sum of all the even-numbered terms. A naive implementation for that might be, well, let me just go generate all of the Fibonacci terms in the sequence up until when? Where, how would you like me to stop? Four billion. <laughs> He is holding his little finger up to his 
I'll do his lip okay. Dr. Evil style. <laughs> right. So, like that would that would I, w I want you to solve this. Uh, if you happen to know uh, a Fibonacci solution uh, from a textbook, it's probably a recursive so a solution. If I was to ask you for four billion terms in the Fibonacci solution solved recursively in a naive fashion, that would blow out the stack of pretty much any modern computer. Uh, and so that's that's what I mean. Like a naive solution. You might give me a naive solution or a, a, a trivial solution to this problem and get an answer, but it's not computationally sound. It's not efficient. Then maybe the next step is, well, how could I make this more efficient? How could I do this without recursion? Or maybe I want to know how I could solve this with recursion. Or maybe I want to know how to solve this functionally. Uh, maybe I want to solve this without any intermediate steps. How could I solve, how could I break this apart into 15 steps? Uh, what are the different things I could do there? Um, the problem that we used that I used the first cohort that I taught um, subjected my poor, poor distraught <laughs> students to uh, Conway's game of life. That was like, poor you know, kids. Yeah, like we're gonna we're gonna solve this trivially. What do you mean you don't know any of it? Uh, the, so we Conway's game of life is a great example. Like, once you understand the problem, you can kind of wrap your head around what what the problem is trying to solve. You can solve it trivially with a doubly indexed array or just a, a block of text or however you want to solve it. Um, but you can't solve it for like an infinite scope with an array because that's not, that's not how it works. You have to start thinking about things differently. Um, you, have to, you have to learn so many different things along the way that you could practice. But there's a whole like um, uh, global day of code uh, wrapped around Conway's game of life. Hey, let's just try to implement Conway's game of life. However many different ways we could possibly implement it. What if they, we couldn't use an array? What if I couldn't use a loop? What if I couldn't use a, you know, what, what else could there be? So I think the bottom line with all of that is is really uh, that you need to, as a junior, right, you need to see what it is that they're going to be offering you as far as educational opportunities in the job um, and then augment whatever it is that you're not getting from the company and from the experience of doing the job with, some things that will help you to expand sort of your abstract thinking and stuff like that um, so that you can, you know, those things will all feed back into the job, right? You'll be able to do that job more efficiently. Maybe you'll be able, there'll be opportunities to advance within that company perhaps even more quickly. Um, and then if if not, if you've reached that point where, you know, the company really isn't, that the job really isn't giving you the opportunities to advance anymore that you need, then perhaps it's time to, to look for something else. But kind of well, all of that to say, basically to keep an eye on, on what it is that you're doing both maybe, you know, in your nine to five and also what it is that you're doing on your own and make sure that those are balanced and that you're getting enough stimulus there to, to keep the knowledge, you know, coming in. All right. Then I guess we can wrap up here and thanks David very much for coming on and staying after work. I, I've been looking over your shoulder. The cleaning crew hasn't come by yet, so I guess you're okay there, but who knows how long it'll last. Ben, if people would like to find out more about the show, where can they go? What can they do? So everything um, that you need to know about us is at mvc.fm. That's our main website. You can uh, listen to the show live, right? Or you can listen to the show right on the website. You can get to the show notes. Live recording will ho hopefully come at some point. Oh, really? But um, you can you can listen to the to the archive shows anyway, uh, all on your own. Um, uh, and also see all the show notes and uh, all the links that we talked about. So the stuff that David mentioned, uh, we'll make sure we get into the show notes so you can check them out. Uh, and then also, if you would like to give us any feedback, we are available on Twitter at NBC Podcast. Thanks. Bye. Bye.